Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Everyone had been so easily satisfied before, and then it got harder to do what we did with ease. The feeling that the group had become what we had rebelled against, that's what a lot of the music became after the band album. Robbie Robertson stated that in the 1982 interview he did reflecting on the band during the early 70s. It had been a while since the band had felt like a good, solid unit together, but truth be told, the band's success was like a rocket ship, and we need to remember that they had sprung a trap and were now stuck in more ways than one. It had only been a few years since the band was really together, and their trajectory was insane. And with all the changing aspects of their career and their lives, each member of the group was going through their own personal struggles in more way than one. And it was a trying time because the brotherhood that had spent so many years together on the road was changing. Each member had their own lives with their own wives, children, and friends. And it seemed that they really didn't know how to communicate or stop that freight train to take a second, slow down, and come up with a plan on how to move forward in their new environment as one of the most popular groups of the late 60s, early 70s. After Cahoots, there was a momentary sigh of relief. It was a desperate attempt at keeping it all together. Collectively, the band's two leaders and Levon and Robbie were very quickly realizing it was finally time to put a stop to it. Their success found them the ability to take more lead in directing their career. And while the band was still plagued with tons of issues, they were becoming fairly self-sufficient. And to help maybe try that one last grasp at reclaiming what they had felt, they had decided that they wanted to go back to making music in the mountains of Woodstock with the world not caring about what they were doing. But like the band always did when they were shutting things down, they wouldn't go out with a whimper, but with a bang. In November of 1971, the band started their tour for Cahoots through the United States. They had asked John Simon to join on tuba and electric piano, and Taj Mahal was chosen to open. The tour was a warm of a sorts for the planned live double album that the band wanted to record at New Year's. The tour was quite the wild ride. Levon remembers one particular gig in Washington, D.C. There was a riot as 500 people tried to rush the stage, trampling everything in their path. And during the commotion, another 500 people broke in through the gates without tickets. 
It was also the first time that the band had played them in the South for several years, a place that they used to spend a majority of their time. It was a complete departure. No longer were the band playing small bars and honky-tonks. They didn't need to drive in Cadillacs and protect their gear with guns at night as they traveled through small southern towns. Though they didn't spend as much time in the South as they once had, they played a solid set of shows starting at the University of Alabama, then going to Memphis's Ellis Auditorium, Dallas, Texas Memorial Auditorium, and stops as well in Houston, New Orleans, and Atlanta. The band also put on great shows in San Francisco, as were customary at this point, including songs in the set like Life is a Carnival and Shootout in Chinatown. reluctantly touring, the band enjoyed the outdoor summer shows this time around, even after swearing off outdoor shows after their terrible experiences in the past. The first was the Schaefer Music Festival, which took place in New York City's Central Park. The festival took place over the course of the summer, from June through August, with many acts including Ray Charles, The Four Seasons, Ike and Tina Turner, among various others. The band had also played the open-air celebration at the Minneapolis Midway Stadium. The show featured acts like Jefferson Airplane, Mountain, John Sebastian, and Faces. But most surprisingly of all the outdoor shows was when they joined Chris Christopherson, Happy and Artie Trom, and others at the Woodstock Anniversary Show at Monticello Raceway, seven miles away from the original festival site. After playing a series of shows, it was also during this time when the band was ready to finally take a break for a while and shut it down. According to Levon's book, Levon, Libby, Robbie, and Dominique were having dinner at Robbie's house one evening as they reminisced about being the end of an era of sorts. Levon had mentioned doing a massive live show with an album as they wanted to really go out with a bang before they shut it all down. Now earlier on in the tour, the band had booked a residency at the Academy of Music in New York City for multiple shows, including the New Year's Eve performance. For the idea of capping off touring and shutting it down for a while, the band then commissioned their new friend, Alan Toussaint, to compose horn charts for their set list. And as ideas kept on flowing, much like a show later on in their careers with The Last Waltz, the idea for what this show would be got bigger and bigger. Toussaint, for starters, added so much life to his contributions on Cahoots, and the band was eager to work with him again. Toussaint is the truth of New Orleans music. It's rhythmic, and it's funky. It's a language unto itself. And so connecting with Alan Toussaint just seemed a natural musical idea. And then for all of this to fit with what we were doing, was um, an interesting process. Prior to rehearsals, the band invited Toussaint to Woodstock. But on his flight from New Orleans to New York, his luggage was lost at the airport. Alan Toussaint wrote all of the charts, came to Woodstock, New York, where we were, and somebody stole his briefcase. And he got to Woodstock saying, I have to start all over again. And then he got terribly ill and got a bad ear infection and lost his hearing. Worse off, in the luggage was the charts composed for the show. 
Thus, when he arrived, he had to write the charts from scratch in a small cabin near Robbie's home with only a few days before the show. Things didn't really get better. Alan got a bad case of double ear infection. Now he couldn't hear. Apparently he didn't mind, as if Beethoven composed without hearing, so could he. Toussaint hunkered down over Christmas and worked on the horn charts day and night. And you know, the band had some concern about adding Toussaint to a lot of their music with horns. Not because he couldn't do it, but the band didn't want their music to change in sound. As we've come to know, the band tended, and rightfully so, to be quite tribal about their music and who they let in their circles. And there was some thought that the band might become a sort of jazz fusion group. And that was something they definitely didn't want to be. But Toussaint was adamant that he wanted to keep the band's music the same and as pure as possible, while just adding flourishes. And with rehearsals coming up, John Simon and famed jazz musician Howard Johnson put together a great horn section. Players included Joe Farrell, J.D. Perrin, Snooky Young, Earl McIntyre, all in all legends, with Garth Hudson also doing his customary solos on the saxophone. Rehearsals took place at Ultrasonic Studios in Long Island, and there was really no guarantee that the charts would work. They ran through Caledonia Mission a few times, and everything began to click. And they spent the next few days tweaking and rehearsing with horns before the first show. Robbie Robertson later told Ralph Gleason, who was present at the show and following the band as they prepped for it, we didn't give it as much time as we really should have. And Gleason also noted in his review that the horns really didn't have more than one full run-through of the songs prior to the first gig. The band selected 11 songs to receive horn charts in total. Get Up Jake, Stage Fright, This Wheel's on Fire, The Weight, The Shape I'm In, The Genetic Method, Do Not Include Horns, and the set list was comprised of materials from the band's first four studio albums with an original song, Get Up Jake, and covers of Marvin Gaye's Baby Don't Do It and Chuck Willis's Don't Wanna Hang Out My Rock and Roll Shoes. As the band and the horn section were prepping for the show, from a promoting side, it was selling out. The 3,000-seater sold out for all three nights in a row, and the band added to their lineup a number of guests that definitely made it worth its while, including John Simon, Doc Thomas, Bobby Charles, and Dr. John. The band began their set with just the members of the core group busting out into Up on Cripple Creek as their opener, and after intermission went into the full horn arrangement. We're going to try something tonight that we've never done before. We'd like to bring out the best horn men in New York to help us do it. Would you welcome Howard Johnson, Snooky Young, Joe Farrell, Earl McIntyre, and J.D. Perrin. Would you give them a big hand here? On the third night, Howard Alk and Murray Lerner came to shoot a few of the songs on film, which still exist today. However, the union reps at the theater caught wind and said if they saw one more camera, they'd break them. The overall show brought about some great performances, including a great rendition of Don't Do It, a song that the band struggled with to record in the studio. Additionally, their cover of I Don't Want to Hang Up My Rock and Roll Shoes is stunning. Listen to what Sebastian Robertson had to say on the track. Hang up my rock and roll Richard Manuel specifically was having an incredible night. You know, rock and roll shoes, he's just slamming that boogie woogie. Another great performance of note is Rick Danko's vocal on Unfaithful Servant. 
Again, showing the places that Danko goes to belt out the lyrics. You hang on every word and know that he definitely means it. One of the greatest moments in the band's history happened on the New Year's Eve show. As Levon notes, the final night we worked was New Year's Eve. We started the show very late because we wanted to be on stage when 1971, a hard, hard year for all of us, faded out. So we played an old samurai movie and went on at about 11. At midnight, Garth interrupted Chess Fever for a bit of Old Lang Syne. Take a listen. it all off and to surprise the audience after midnight Bob Dylan took the stage. The crowd had already been there for three hours but were excited that Dylan decided to join in. Unrehearsed the band went through a number of tunes that Dylan shouted out which included Crash the Levee, Down in the Flood, When I Paint My Masterpiece, Don't You Tell Henry and Like a Rolling Stone. Take a listen. We haven't played this in how many years? Six Six years we haven't played this. Sixteen years. Once upon a time you dress so fast through the bones and down in your grass then you As soon as we kicked off the first song, it was over. We weren't even touching ground. You could see the sound covering the people. It was the greatest experience of our life. And after the show, Levon mentioned to Dylan about hooking up and playing another tour again. A surprise Dylan was taken aback and mentioned maybe he was going to go on tour with the Grateful Dead. And it wouldn't be long before the talk ended up leading to their next collaboration. With Rock of Ages in the books, 
The live double album was released in August of 1972 by Capitol Records and was titled Rock of Ages. It charted in the United States at number six, and the album was engineered once again by Mark Harmon with the aid of Phil Ramone. The cover design was done by Bob Cato, who had worked on Stage Fright, and photography was done by Cato and Fred Lombardi. Critically, too, it was well-received. Barney Hoskins said after that evening, Rick and Levon were now the tightest, most soulful white rhythm section outside of Muscle Shoals. And in a retrospective review by Andrew Romano for The Daily Beast, he gave the album high praise, saying, And yet, every time I listen to it, I'm more convinced that it's the best live album of all time. Not the last waltz, not before the flood with Bob Dylan, Rock of Ages, the earlier one, the better one. And Ralph J. Gleason, who I had mentioned earlier, said this in Rolling Stone. Rock and roll is surely here to stay if the band has anything to do with it. Everyone take a bow. And Stephen Thomas Erlewine said that Rock of Ages has that kick in spades and it captures the road warrior side of the band that was yet unheard of on the records. And that what's so splendid about Rock of Ages, sure the tightness of the band as their performing unit is on display, but there's also a wild rowdy heart pumping in the backbeat of their music. Something that is otherwise superb studio albums do not have. Later that year, as an ultimate accomplishment for the band, Rock of Ages was named Rolling Stones Album of the Year. However, with all the praise, there was some difficulty among the critics. Yes, Rock of Ages was a celebration of their work and a damn good one at it, but there was also the feeling that there wasn't really any new material. Writer Carl Dallas said that Rock of Ages was something of a holding pattern, an opinion that I think was held by more, even if it was going unspoken. And as a side note on all of this, there has been much discussion about the recording of the show. There was uncertainty about exactly when it was recorded. The TV band documentary from 1995 seems to have the most definitive answer that a majority of the concert was taped at soundchecks versus the show themselves. Regardless, many consider it one of the finest live albums of all time and a dry run for The Last Waltz, or some even better than The Last Waltz. As the year came to close, the band taking a break wasn't the only thing that was changing. Albert Grossman, their infamous manager, had taken more of a backseat. And really, this can be pinned down to three reasons. Reason one, Bob Dylan had become disenfranchised with Grossman's management. Grossman wasn't really easy to get along with, and he demanded a lot of his talent in terms of their engagements and payment. Ultimately, the two clashed because they had two very strong personalities. Ultimately, though, Grossman was devastated by the fact that Dylan had left him. He was Grossman's golden star and the one that really established him in the industry. Reason two, Peter Yarrow. Yarrow was a member of Peter, Paul, and Mary and was also an early Grossman product. Yarrow was also responsible for bringing Grossman and Dylan and by extension most of the important Woodstock musicians there in the 60s. In 1970, Yarrow was convicted of taking improper liberties with a 14-year-old girl. The girl and her older sister went to his hotel room to get an autograph, with Yarrow opening the door naked, trying to make advances on the girls. It just stopped short of intercourse. For the incident, Yarrow served three months in prison, which was very short on his original three-year sentence. This incident was quite damning for his career and put a damper on the Grossman-Yarrow relationship. And reason three was Janis Joplin, who had just died by drug overdose. Grossman was an apparent father figure to Joplin and mentored her as well as let her live with him and his wife for some time. 
Joplin, who was trying to get clean, relapsed and died in her hotel room at the Landmark Motor Hotel in Hollywood on August 24, 1970. Many have claimed that because of these incidences, Grossman had lost his edge, his aggression that made him unique and a powerful asset. The band, his last jewel, was now fairly self-sufficient, and the group wasn't interested in touring or most of the commercial ventures. Grossman's retreat coincided with David Geffen entering the picture. Geffen had begun his career in the mailroom at William Morris Agency and quickly became a talent agent there. He made a name for himself before leaving WMA to personally manage bands like Crosby, Stills, and Nash and work on getting record deals for young artists like Jackson Brown. Without any luck with Brown, Geffen said, screw it, I'm going to start my own record label and created Asylum Records in 1971. Asylum was quickly becoming the generator of the Southern California folk rock music and signed artists like the Eagles, Joni Mitchell, Linda Bronstall, J.D. Souther, and Bob Dylan. Now, Geffen had met Robertson when he was out in Los Angeles, and Geffen was on the attack from the beginning. With Dylan locked in, he tried for the band. Now, Geffen and Robertson hit it off immediately, and Geffen was really trying his angle to get Robbie and the band to move out to California. While it'd still be some time before the band made any moves, Geffen was working hard to plant the seeds to get the band, the poster child for the Woodstock music scene, to come and uproot their lives and careers and move to Los Angeles. And while Robbie was figuring out his next projects and talking to Geffen, in 1971, between the breaks of Cahoot's recording session, Rick Danko was busy at work on other projects. He teamed up with John Simon and co-produced Bobby Charles' first album. Charles was born in Louisiana in 1938 as Robert Charles Goodry, and grew up listening to local Cajun music and country western music by Hank Williams. When he was around 13 years old, he started singing with a band in his hometown, playing a blend of Cajun and country. He once said when he heard Fats Domino's Going Home on the radio in 1952, it changed his life. Not only did Fats change his life, but he wanted to write songs with Fats. Not long after, Charles was on the phone singing songs to Leonard Chess, the owner of the world-famous Chess Records. Not long after, he was signed to Chess Records, and the label thought he was black upon meeting him for the first time in person, ultimately surprised that he was white. Now signing with Chess, they changed his name from Robert Charles Goodry to Bobby Charles, and he began to record and write hits like See You Later Alligator. In 1956, he also recorded songs of Fats Domino's Walking to New Orleans, and It Keeps Raining. He continued to write for many other artists, but never really had the success much beyond the regional area. Ultimately, he ended up leaving Chess in 1958. Though it wasn't a complete failure, Charles grew as a writer and seemingly invented the swamp pop genre. And around that time, Charles got his ultimate dream. Fats Domino invited him to a show in New Orleans, Charles signed with Fats label Imperial and worked there for much of the 60s. Again, he didn't really hit big on anything. There was a lot of problems that stemmed from the fact that he didn't really enjoy touring and that he had a really jealous wife that wouldn't let him leave town. He ended up leaving his wife, but problems got worse. He was busted for pot in Nashville. Now being caught with marijuana was a lot bigger deal than a major offense. And with it looking likely that he was going to go to jail or prison for some time, he escaped and left for New York State. And now, apparently he didn't know what was going on in Woodstock, New York, but he saw the name on the map and decided, you know what, it looks like a cool place, I'll retreat there. When he got into town, he ended up living with two other musicians who quickly introduced him to Albert Grossman, and by proxy artists like the band, Dr. John, 
among many other local musicians. Charles was quickly signed to Bearsville Records and wanted to work on his first album. Thus, he employed John Simon and Rick Danko to help him. And with the trio working on the album, it was a perfect blend of the good time Rick Danko feel and the Bobby Charles Swampy Cajun sound. The majority of the album ended up being recorded at Bearsville Studio. And now Danko was involved as a producer, a writer, a performer, and an arranger on the album, and he co-wrote one of Charles' best songs, Small Town Talk. Here's Bobby Charles on writing the song with Rick Danko. Uh, Small Town Talk, Rick and I wrote that. I got that idea for it sitting down in the bear bar. <laughs> Half wiped out and called him up and I said, man, you gotta come get me right now. I don't wanna forget this. <laughs> he says, okay, I'll be there in five minutes. And he was. And we went to this building that they had rented to store their equipment down the road. Yeah. And they had an electric uh, piano hooked up in there and we uh, finished writing the song there. Now, Small Town Talk is a really fun song. It's light and fun with a decent groove and has a nice dose of organ. Take a listen. It's all small town talk You know how people are They can't stand the sea Someone else doing what they like It's all small town talk You mustn't pay no mind Don't believe a word They'll try to do it every time Credits for the album weren't very well documented, but Dr. John occupies the organ and acoustic guitar and Levon is featured on drums. And according to Charles, they recorded the song on Halloween night and there was a full moon, insinuating that Dr. John and co. were in full and rare form. Overall, the album as a whole blends soulful ballads with light Cajun rock and gathers performances from all band members minus Robbie Robertson. Additionally, others who appear on the album are John Till, Richard Manuel's bandmate from the Rebels and their teenage group, blues guitarist Amos Garrett, who is in part responsible for linking up the Hawks with Bob Dylan, as well as playing with Ian and Sylvia Tyson as founding members of their band Great Speckled Bird. The album was released in 1972. Some say it's a lost band album of sorts. It certainly is more consistent and arguably better in many ways compared to Cahoots, and it also shows the growth of Rick Danko as a songwriter, an arranger, and a producer. However, the album wasn't a major success, and Charles quickly retreated. He ended up disappearing from public view for pretty much a decade, only really coming out of the woodworks every once in a while. And apparently, there was even more songs that he and Danko worked on, but they really never came out. Bobby Charles is another important musician from an era where all the assets were there, but they really just never added up. That could cause a lot of hurt. It's all small town talk. You know how people are. They can't stand the sea. Someone else. As things were winding down for the band in regards to recording and playing live, Levon had decided it was time to get out of Woodstock for some time. He mentions in his book, I knew it was time to get out of Woodstock for a while. 
people were getting drunker, the drugs were everywhere, the town was struggling under the post-festival onslaught of hippies, runaways, and burnouts. Levon was also fed up with the whole business side of the band. The operation was getting too big to cooperate, and he had no longer trusted Albert Grossman and cut him out entirely. Ready for a change, Levon decided to better himself by going back to school. Outside of the thousands of hours on on-site drumming training, he didn't really understand music theory, a common thing for a lot of musicians. A lot of drummers he had admired and spoke to had some form of musical training. Thus, Levon got his friend Lindsay Holland to enroll him for a semester at Berklee School of Music, one of the most prestigious music institutions in the world. He moved with Libby and his baby Amy to Cambridge, Massachusetts into a flat while studying. It was during this time without the pressures of the band that he focused on being a father and a partner. Enlisting as Mark to disguise his identity, he was fully focused. Even their friend and collaborator John Simon came to town to check in on Levon. Simon, an educated musician, was impressed and later said, I thought it was amazing that Levon was studying. Remember, this is a guy that Rolling Stone had just called the best drummer around. He wanted to refine his technique, and instead of taking some master class, he went back to the basics and was learning it all over again. I think this speaks most to Levon's character. He wanted to and was always willing to focus on the craft and get better, even if he didn't really need to. Regardless, it was a good time, and Berkeley allowed him to further refine his craft. While Levon was going to school, Robbie and his family escaped to Canada, taking up home in Montreal. Rick, as mentioned, was producing Bobby Charles' album and spent some time in Florida also working with charities to help dolphin populations in the region. Garth spent his time building his home in Woodstock and doing typical Garth things. And then there was Richard, in the ever-storied chronicle of his downward spiral. As Levon notes, Richard blamed himself that the band wasn't working. And from what can be gathered, the band didn't really blame Richard, and he was just really being hard on himself. However, there is a truth to his sentiment. Richard, at the beginning, was a primary songwriter, and during the basement tapes, was extremely productive. However, the band's dysfunction really can't entirely be blamed on him. Richard was mentally ill and used drugs and alcohol to cope. By 1973, he was in very rough condition, wasting away for the year as the band, as separate individuals, were working on other things. Essentially retired from music, and his toxic on-and-off-again relationship with Jane was pretty much over at this point. Many people tried to help him in their own way. Albert Grossman tried to get him to record. As mentioned, Mason Hoffenberg was living with him trying to get him help, in his own weird twisted way. Bob Dylan tried to help him, but refused to go in his house after there was dog shit all over the floor. What is really telling is the code in which the band operated. Apparently, each member promised to never interfere with each other's lives. It kind of seems backwards now as they were essentially a family. And who better ask for support than your family? Though everybody was really going through their own things, Levon tried to rid himself of heroin during this period, and he was really tired of the drug and seeing the victims it was claiming. He ended up going home to Arkansas and staying with his parents detoxing for five days before returning to Woodstock to start his own dream project, which was building a barn with a studio, living quarters, and a television and movie space. Another revelation that happened during the band's break was Jonathan Taplin, their longtime road manager and friend, decided that he wanted to call it quits. 
He found it increasingly difficult to wrangle the band, and apparently one evening, Levon even got violent with him. He was done. He wanted to move to California and get involved with movies and become a producer. With the year going by and everyone finishing up on their projects, there was regular meetings with each member of the band back in Woodstock. However, everyone for the most part were just rather there in body rather than in spirit. No one really wanted to write or make another album, and they couldn't even get Richard to show up to any of the meetings. Collectively, they went to Richard's house and really yelled at him, tried to get him help, among many other things. But they ended up giving him an ultimatum. Either he start putting in some effort, or they'd have to remove him from the group. It wasn't a money thing or out of anger, but really out of sadness. They had to move on. There was also interest peaking for the band to play more live shows. So they went over to his house and confronted him. He promised to get it together and the band said that they needed to see a plan and they'd come back in a few days. Well, that plan wasn't exactly well thought out. Apparently Richard said, when the band reconvened, withdrawal could send me into shock and even kill me. And according to Sigmund Freud and other doctors, the way to kick a major addiction of shooting heroin is to replace it with injecting high quality cocaine. No withdrawal symptoms and the cocaine isn't addictive. So I can stop as soon as I'm over the hump. Isn't that incredible? And they knew that back in the 20s. Well, in hindsight, this plan was ridiculous. But even if it got him off of his feet, the band accepted that this was the plan going forward. They continued to monitor Richard but now he was wired at the hilt, seeing bugs crawling on the walls and acting out. Now the next step was to try to get him off of cocaine, and at least temporarily bring him down. But as Robbie stated in his memoir, the craziest part was, while seeing this terrible disturbing thing that cocaine did to Richard, the rest of us found it totally sane to keep on snorting it. None of us were angels, we all had our own personal demons to chase, and the race was on. Now, the band wasn't ready to get back on the road or to record an album. They really didn't have much inspiration. They were still running on fumes, but they needed to do something and decided to go back in the studio and record an album of covers. Songs that they had listened to as kids growing up, songs that they had played together as the Hawks that initially bonded the group. And maybe, just maybe, in an attempt to record this album, inspiration would follow. The juices would start flowing and maybe get them back to where they once were. And more importantly, potentially even save Richard Manuel's life. Thank you again for listening to The Band of History. One thing you'll notice right off the bat is that this episode is shorter. That was definitely the intent. With the new year coming, we were really trying to continue to deliver high quality episodes with some level of frequency. So we will be generally shortening our episodes with an attempt to bring more episodes more frequently. Uh, especially with topics like this, the in-between years, well, there's some cool projects like we mentioned, like Bobby Charles or Levon going to Berkeley. Um, it's not a major album or something, so with these in-between episodes, we're really trying to chalk them full with good information, but keep them bite-sized. Um, we've also got a lot of other great things in the pipeline that we're going to be sharing in the next coming weeks. We've got some great interviews. Um, our interview with Once We're Brothers filmmaker Daniel Rohr was really well received, and we want to continue to do more of those. 
So look out on our social media for guest announcements. There will always be a post asking for listener questions as that's one of my favorite things to do. Gather everybody's questions and really ask our guests uh, all of those things that you guys want to know. Uh, Remember, you can rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps the podcast in more ways than one. And we've got a curated playlist for listeners of the show that you can find in the description of this episode and on Spotify. Just added some great Bobby Charles stuff. Uh, Bobby Charles is really underrated. And, you know, it's because he kind of disappeared often and, you know, he had his own problems. But uh, once you learn about him, you should definitely check him out and uh, really enjoy his music. As always, you can check us out on our social media. We've put a lot of time into providing great content and historical content uh, with unique photos on our Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook, and you can find that at The Band Podcast. There's also a brand new way you can help the show. Check out our Patreon to donate to the show. Find the link on our website at thebandpodcast.com. Any way that you guys can help out the show is great as we continue to need money for, you know, the website and the gear and making this show even possible. And as always, this podcast is part of the Pantheon Media Group, home of various amazing shows focusing on music. You can check them out online. So thanks again for listening to the Band of History. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you in a few weeks. Playing the shape I'm in Made us feel right at home Like we were next to kid Riding in his pocket that night song shine his light still lives in that barn and leave on my mind his light still lives